Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Richards Report podcast. This episode we have an extra special guest. I'm speaking with Nick Hungerford, the founder of Nutmeg. For those that aren't aware of Nutmeg, Nutmeg is Europe's biggest robo-advisor. They're located over in the UK and Nick has a really fascinating story to share. Nick's from England, previously worked in wealth management and went over to California to do an MBA at Stanford University. It was while studying there that Nick identified the opportunity that technology now allows to bring professional wealth management to everyone. He came up with the idea to provide investment management online in what is now known around the world as robo-advice. We discussed the challenges of being an entrepreneur to growing the business and raising money and even talk about where Nutmeg are at today. In a relatively short period of time, Nutmeg has grown to be the fifth biggest wealth manager in the UK. It's completely changed the way people in the UK invest. So much so that Goldman Sachs just invested in a $60 million funding round as Goldman Sachs want to start providing the benefits of robo-advice to their clients. For someone who has achieved so much in such a short period of time, Nick is incredibly humble and open about what he has learned along the way. He has since stepped away from Nutmeg and is involved in a venture capital fund in Singapore called Portage. I think you'll really enjoy the discussion. As always, the podcast is for informational purposes only and does not qualify as financial advice. Also, people may hold positions in companies discussed. Okay, with no further ado, I'm Ted Richards, you're listening to The Richards Report, and here is my chat with entrepreneur and venture capital investor, Nick Hungerford. You're listening to The Richards Report, where we will speak with investment experts from around the country. We will cut through the jargon to allow you to make more insightful investment decisions for your future. This is The Richards Report. Hi, Nick. Thanks for chatting today. Thanks, Ted. Really excited and uh, appreciative of you having me on. Nick, I read that your initial idea to start a robo-advisor all started during your time studying at Stanford. Can you please tell us a bit about that story and what the catalyst was? Yeah, it wasn't actually an idea to start a robo-advisor at all. Um, not that we knew what a robo-advisor was then, so I wasn't uh, I wasn't not trying to start it. I guess I just didn't really know um, what it was, and, and it wasn't really the plan. The, the original plan was to build a, a sort of dating website for clients or potential clients and financial advisors. It was amazing to me that uh, some of my classmates, who you know, extremely high potential students and I think might might be classed as you know you could reasonably expect them to be quite wealthy um, in future years couldn't couldn't find someone to help them with their money management so I had the idea that we should build some psychological tests and find the ideal managers uh, for you know for the ideal clients Um, and unfortunately that proved to be a, a terrible idea or maybe fortunately as the way things worked out um, and, and the reason it was terrible is because despite all the psychological tests that we put together and um, sort of good good murmurs and sort of thoughts and feedback from the financial advisors, when, when they actually came to fill it in, um, what, what happened was they put it as wide as possible just to attract as much uh, of an asset base as possible rather than thinking about the individual clients that they might want. 
Um, so it proved to be, you know, a, 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 probably a decent idea with terrible execution or the inability to execute. And and through that process, uh, we learned that um, actually most of the portfolio management services are pretty similar. You know, people like to adopt a core satellite approach or a you know beta with a little bit of alpha approach. And um, you you come from an investment management background too. Yeah, um, sorry, excuse me, um, excuse me, getting into the story it always always makes me a bit emotional. Um, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I had I had come from an investment management background, which I think is why my classmates were picking on me to help them manage their money. You know, it, it just it just felt like we could do this. You know, as something as simple as me putting a spreadsheet together and people copying me, um, and that was that was the start of sort of online discretionary management, if you like, and. Uh, I think in about 2013, 2014, one of the American companies that sprouted up as as a consequence of of, of us all starting this idea um, coined the term robo advice, and um, and that's how it, that's how that came about. But um, yeah, before that, we were just talking about digital investment management, which is not half as trendy as robo advice, obviously. Well, um, on the term robo-advice, what's your thoughts of that term? Because uh, without anchoring you, personally, I'm not a big fan of it. Well, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because obviously we're both, um, we're both quite uh, involved in the business that um, sort of chooses, chooses what to call itself rather than the other way around now. Um, you know, I, I, I feel that I, I like it and I don't like it. I like it because it implies speed, uh, efficiency, um, low cost, you know, I think I think the mechanics of the robo um, word are, are good. What I don't like about it is it implies lack of service or um, impersonal service. And actually, you know, you can't get away with that when you're managing people's money. Uh, you can have a really good interface, which is very intelligent. Um, but if it doesn't know when to speak to people or doesn't distribute the right content at the right time or, or can't empathize, then it's, it's always going to struggle. Um, money is money is such an emotional, visceral subject um, that involves many different permutations. And you know, when you're single, it's one thing, and when you're married, it's another, and when you have children, it's another, and when you're a grandparent, it's another. Um, so that's what I don't like about robo. I wish there was some snazzy way we could say sort of tech-enabled, um, you know, tech-empowered financial advice. But um, I'm not that smart, unfortunately. Before we get into um, your great story about starting Nutmeg and where it's grown to today, so much hard work goes into the big complex things like building the technology and the infrastructure for online businesses like Nutmeg. But it's also hard to come up with something like the name too. So how did you come up with the name? Well, again, I have to you know refer you to people much smarter and deeper thinking than me. Um, so our first two... <laughs> Our first two uh, employees, if you like, part of the founding team, really, um, were designers, also also based um, or educated in California, and we we were going with the holding name of of Hungry Finance, um, which is just a sort of play on my surname, and uh, and they insisted that you know this would be a really important thing for us, is you know to to think of the right name, uh, and we came up with with hundreds. Um, you know, I think there's definitely some some evidence that doing this after a few drinks is is a good process for for creativity. <laughs> uh, in the end, we ended up with 528 names on our on our Google spreadsheet, and it took a, 
about eight months um, through user testing, focus groups, uh, surveys, etc., to, to find one name that ranked um, more than fifty percent for for trust, and that was that was a measure that we really wanted to you know to stand out on, and that name was Nutmeg. You know, and Nutmeg has an amazing story when it comes to the resonance with what we were doing, uh, because back in back in the seventeenth and eighteenth century, nutmeg was the most valuable spice in the world. Um, it was you know considered uh, an absolute delicacy, and in fact, the ship workers in Liverpool and New York weren't allowed pockets in their trousers uh, for fear that they might steal a nutmeg, and that would have been enough for them to retire on. Um, so. Obviously, then nutmeg was only available to the rich, and now it's available to the poor. Um, if I say poor, I just mean you know it's an everyday person. That was a terrible choice of choice of words. And uh, and if we can have a drum roll, please. Um, that's what nutmeg has done for wealth management. It's um, you know it's turned it from something that was exclusive to the wealthy um, to someone that now everyone can benefit from. Uh, and um, and I'm so really proud of that. But in the surveys, um, not many people knew that story. Uh, in the surveys, it came back as the name of my first pet or an association <laughs> with family and Christmas. Or if you're a soccer fan, uh, Nutmeg is uh, the act of putting the ball between the opponent's legs um, and running past them. And so it just it just ranked really highly. And um, yeah, the guys did an amazing job over eight months weeding out all the names. And, and probably their hardest job was you know, it was moving me away from names which I had got deeply committed to. Um, you know, some of them were absolutely terrible uh, looking back on the list, yeah. Well, it's funny you, you share your story about Nutmeg, and I think it's a fantastic name. Um, Six Park was named after one of the founders who's got a beach house at Six Park Avenue. For, for him, it's the feeling of um, family being safe and secure, which resonates, and uh, that's that's the story of ours. But I was unaware of the uh, that nutmeg story. Nick, um, moving along, investing is often ten or twenty year investment, even more. And it, but it's funny how important non investing things like a user experience is when someone logs into their account. Can you tell us your thoughts on UX, UI, and any of the learnings you can share from your experience in this area? It's, it's really funny with money because what we've found is that you actually can't predict whether a quick, clean, um, simple UI um, helps people believe that your product is you know, very, very slick and, and, and good um, or whether something very complicated that takes a long time actually engenders trust a bit more. And the reason for this when it comes to money is that people like to f- feel that something significant is happening. Uh, and if you go to a financial advisor, um, you know, part of their genius is just how long it takes. Because once you've sat through two meetings with a financial advisor and signed 60 forms and looked up all the details that you need to give them, goodness knows, you know, you're not going to want to go to another one. Well, you've got a lot of sunk costs. Right, exactly. So you've started this process and... You know, often you might say, oh, you know, not sure about my financial advisor, but going to another one is just such a t- tough decision, which is really absurd when you think about, you know, what, what a difference in fees might do to your portfolio um, over the medium and long term, for example. So, um, so UX and UI and getting it right is, is very tricky when it comes to money. There is one secret, though, um, and that is the concept of dig deeper. Uh, when people have questions as it relates to their money, 
they will really lose trust in the site if it doesn't give them the ability to answer that question when they look. Um, and and you've got to therefore have an incredible resource of uh, of Q and A, um, whether it's on your app or on your website, so people can dig in and find those answers. You you lose trust very quickly if if people think that you're hiding something. Um, so it's so it's a very interesting challenge getting the UX and the UI right when it comes to money matters. Um, not as simple as other things where people just want to get it done as quickly as possible, like booking a hotel or or a flight. Um, but uh, but one that intellectually is, is quite stimulating. Yeah, well, it's a it's a high consideration item as opposed to just buying a book online or a a, a flight, which you've we all do from time to time. Yeah, but I also Ted, read, Ted, Ted, you know, you can say that, right? But how often do people go to a you know interview two IFAs or financial advisors versus how often do, when you're going out for dinner do you look at a couple of restaurant options? And this is what's so you know, amazing about this decision. It's it's one of the most important decisions you're ever going to make in your life. And yet you're likely to go with the first person you land on. And when you go out for dinner, you're probably reading reviews from a couple of different sites or at least a couple of different restaurants. And it's just dinner. And yeah. and, and I think I think, you know, we, we just have no comprehension in finance yet how to uh, how to get around that issue, how to make sure that people are making the right choices. Um, because it's hard. Um, I can remember reading recently about the three most important decisions we make in life we don't get to practice. And one is who we marry. Another is um, the mortgage. And the other is our our retirement savings, which uh, is consistent with uh, what you just mentioned there. Um, Nick, I also read that making it easy for clients to withdraw their money was actually a good thing. Can you please tell us a bit about why that's the case? As so many in the industry, as we know, do the opposite. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and I think this is. I need to give all credit to this to um, uh, my good friend and and uh, advisor John Bashirs, um, who was a professor um, at Stanford at the time, is now now working at Harvard. He he told us that um, you know if you put up barriers to people, um, they will they will see you like they see the incumbents. They'll be in it. You know, a suspicion that you are, you've got something to hide, that you need to, you know, you need, you're somehow, you know, need, needing to trap them in, I think is, you know, it's probably the word trap. And, and actually, if you give people the option and they know that they can take out their money at any time, then whilst some people may do that for very good reason, if you're saving for a house, then you need the house deposit. Um, if you've come to retirement and it's time to spend some of your hard, hard-earned cash, but actually, the ability to take money out any time means that people don't have to worry about it. And generally, they will trust you more. Um, again, it's a quirk of finance that people will sign um, papers with you know, with financial advisors who charge them exit fees. I mean, can you imagine you know, someone, uh, someone actually doing that? And, and yet, it happens all the time. Um, so, so for us, we try and make it as easy as possible, and that's and that's an effort to say to people, it's your money, it's not our money. Uh, we will be stewards and custodians, and we will treat it with, you know, all the care that it deserves. But ultimately, it's yours. I, I totally agree. And um, sometimes, when I'm speaking with clients, they can't believe that we don't have exit fees and money's back in their account two days later. There's no, uh, there's none of these lags that they've become accustomed to, but. Before I go to the next question, uh, we, we should do a shout out to John Bashirs, your your lecturer over at Harvard. 
who um, who listeners may be aware, I spoke with uh, with a couple of episodes on behavioural economics. So if you haven't heard those episodes, I highly recommend you um, subscribe and check out the back catalogue. And when um, John drops some knowledge bombs uh, for everyone on behavioural economics. Yeah, it's just incredible insights. I'll give you an example for um, Australia on that topic, which I'm sure is um, quite pertinent. And that that's with property versus uh, equities, because... You know, property is arguably, um, according to some academic papers, the most intrinsically volatile asset there is. Uh, And we know that there's huge transaction costs going in and out of property. Yet, precisely because it's so hard to go in and out, people will often say, oh, property's been a better investment because they've just stuck with it. And if if the same happened with shares, if we didn't see market movements on on the news every day, if we said... Now, if suddenly the, the news in Australia started reporting on Ted's house and how far up and down that was moving, um, you'd probably be a lot more worried about property. So, so there is this, um, you know, there is this trouble with with portfolios that um, there's so much psychology to overcome. Um, you know, if you don't let people take their money out, then they start panicking. And uh, Nick, you do you do know the Australian market fairly well, and in Australia we are obsessed with property and. Um, Somehow um, and sometimes incorrectly, we we always or people can always look to properties and investment as opposed to the benefits of diversifying. Nick, um, Nutmeg has grown incredibly quickly. How is it going from starting a business all by yourself and along with your co-founders to you know to then the next stage to managing a handful of people, then to say over fifty staff, and I'm not even sure what Nutmeg's up to these days. How long did that process take and, and how was that whole experience for you? Because as a founder and a CEO, that's a, that's a lot of moving parts and a lot of skills required to manage it all. Uh, it is. And I, I think that there's very few people who, um, you know, who are very talented at all of those different stages. And I'm, I'm certainly not one of those. Uh, you have to lean very heavily on your, um, you know, your co-founders and your early team members and, and the people around you. Um, it's really important, I say, to everybody to interview uh, lots of lawyers to find someone, not just the first person, but someone you can really, uh, you know, speak to in, in in the dark moments and cry on their shoulders. It's important to have great investors who can help you through the journey and, and understand that it's not always going to be a smooth ride. Uh, it's important to get a good advisory group around you and also to remember uh, that, that your friends, you know, are there to support you um, socially and, and emotionally as well. Um, and um, and also to take your mind off it, you know, a little bit. I remember in the early days of Nutmeg, I was so enthusiastic about it. Just well, I'm still enthusiastic about it, but you know, at the time, it's it's all you can speak about. And um, one of my friends saying to me, Nick, you know, we love you, but you know, you've got to start talking about something else, um, you know, because you're just getting boring. And uh, I was okay. Yeah, probably made a really good point here. Um, so I think I think you know making sure that there's life outside what you do is is critical as an entrepreneur. And the second point I, I would uh, make on on this as a practical tip is is as a founder, um, think about your early stage team and don't try and hide too much or or better word is protect them too much from the ups and downs. You know, Nutmeg I was always in the early stages of fundraising trying to take it upon myself and and that you know, is, is tough for your health or the stress levels. And 
someone came to me, one of the early team members, um, as we were fundraising and said, look, you, you seem really stressed. We know you're doing fundraising. You know, why don't you talk to us about it and see how we can help? And at the time I thought, oh my God, if, if, if I tell them, you know, we're going to be out of cash soon, then they're all just going to leave. Uh, but as they kind of explained to me, you know, you, you join an early stage company knowing it's an adventure. And actually being part of that adventure is, is what you sign up for. Um, I don't think it's everyone's cup of tea to hear, but I think for most people, um, you know, who are involved with that kind of company, it's, it's, it's a really um, great experience to be, to be in the loop. So I started t telling people in the company much more about what we were going through, and um, that helped me share the story and, and share the journey. So, you know, just remember that, you know, first of all, it's not all about you and the company, and, and um, that'll help you get some perspective from the outside as, as everything grows. And second, not to take it all upon yourself. Well, that's some great insight there. I, I think um, it was Elon Musk or someone like that that said being a founder of a startup is, is similar to... Um, chewing glass while staring at the sun or something like that because it's definitely a roller coaster I guess being a, a the founder of a startup has its big ups and downs you mentioned investors and I wouldn't mind just touching on that because having a good idea for a business is one thing but raising money from other investors is another how did you find this process uh I I, I was a slight pause there as I sort of curl into my shell and um, start crying. <laughs> um, you know, raising money is in incredibly painful. Um, and anyone who's been through it will, will understand this. Um, it takes longer than you think, it, you know, even if even if it's competitive process, uh, it's, you know, it's, um, it's hard. And you're, you're, you're not just raising money, you know, for the company, which is your baby, and you believe in you're also raising money for the team, you know, for their livelihoods, um, for your reputation. Um, you know, there's there's so many factors that, that ride on this. So, you know, as as an investor now, I, I try and um, walk with the founders in, in that journey uh, and try and remember um, just all the emotional side of it as well as, as, well as the financial and the practical side of it. Um, you know, there are, and, and I've been so lucky, there are great investors out there who have made made it easier um, for for fundraising, and they they walk you through the process, communicate with you well, etc. Um, and I think they're a credit to the VC industry um, when they do that. But yeah, if um, you know, I, I'm not sure. I've I've had Elon's experience of um, eating glass whilst um, staring at the sun. That sounds like something he did at Burning Man, um, but. Uh, but I suspect it gets somewhere close. So just to give a bit of context to your journey that you've been on, what was the size of the first funding round? It's about £800,000, about a million US dollars. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, we were very grateful to those, to those early investors, um, Pentec, Tim Draper and some angels um, for their support. And it would never have happened um, without them. And as hard as it might have been, and it would have been to raise that 800,000 um, from early stage investors, to think that Nutmeg has just completed a 60 million funding round, um, which is huge. And not only that, with Goldman Sachs participating, 
How was that moment for you personally, considering the journey that you've been on along with your other co-founders? I think uh, it's you know it's a great credit to the you know to the team uh, leading leading Nutmeg, and uh, they should you know they should certainly be um, you know be praised for for all the efforts to achieve that. I I don't know um, if if everything is is um, you know is is sort of rosy in the emotions when when you raise money. Um, and I'm not just talking about the dilution, uh, but does it come with you know, pressure? As, 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 well, I think it, yeah, it, it does come with pressure to deliver. Um, but also, as a founder, um, despite Amazon not being profitable for 20 years and Tesla, you know, all these all these wonderful companies, Snapchat, etc., I still feel that um, you know, the, the longer you raise money, the more you have to prove the business model. Um, you know, are people going to pay for it? Are people willing to um, to be customers for the long term, etc.? Um, when it, when it's like like this round was for Nutmeg, when it's about fueling further growth, um, you know, it's very easy to understand and be enthusiastic about. Um, but I, I I try to encourage entrepreneurs not to think of funding as a vanity metric. Same thing about um, how many staff you've got. You know, not. Having having three thousand staff is not necessarily a good thing. So, um, whilst it's definitely a sign of progress, uh, I don't want anyone listening to think that um, you know we're any less humble because because we've raised a lot of money. You know, there's still a lot of work to go, and uh, you know, as you say, we've got to pressure and to prove ourselves, and uh, ultimately to make to make money and to create value for our shareholders. Out of interest, in your opinion, why did a large international bank like Goldman Sachs invest in a robo-advisor? Oh, it's all the founder. They just love the founder. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there's, I think there's plenty of, um, pl- plenty of reasons. Um, you know, but let's let's be think. You know, let's think about the the specific Goldman Sachs um, strategy at the moment. They've made a conscious effort to move more towards the retail customer. Uh, and and they've had an incredibly successful um, opening salvo with Marcus, yeah. their um, their deposit account. For listeners that may not be aware, Marcus is is it's it's a bit more than an app, isn't it, um, Nick? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's it's a cash deposit account, um, and and they're paying a very good rate of interest, and it's it's a fantastic way to save. But there are next steps to that. You know, there are next steps in terms of lending, there are next steps in terms of saving, and there are next steps in terms of investing. So Nutmeg is a natural partner to help um, Goldman Sachs with that. I think that's one one reason. The second reason is that um, large investment banks, or just generally banks like Goldman, have been around for a long time, and they will be around for a long time. And there's lots of fintech which is um, very good, very fast. Um, but not necessarily something that's built for the long term. And when it comes to investing, everything we preach, everything we talk about is about long term. You know, ride the volatility of the markets. Um, you know, keep the faith. Uh, you know, through the through the ups and the downs, save more, compound it up. So I think there's a natural cultural fit uh, between strategic investors and businesses like Nutmeg, which. Perhaps doesn't exist with with other um, businesses, which quite rightly have a more short term strategy. Nutmeg, 
and other robo-advisors in the US um, have really democratised wealth management. Uh, and you've had a, a real impact hel- helping so many people with their investments. Over, the, um, over your journey with Nutmeg, have there been any client stories over the years that you can share? I think, I think um, you know, in aggregate, the thing that I've, I've enjoyed the most is people telling me about their investments in the stock market um, for, you know, for the first time, you know, people who have never had that opportunity before. I think that that's, you know, that for me is a real positive. Um, although, you know, it is painful when, when people invest in the, and the markets go down and they lose money and, you know, it's very hard not to take that personally. Yeah, I, I appreciate that too. I, I, I feel that too. You know, people do. But I think, I think in terms of specific examples, uh, I have to, you know, probably for, for safety as well, draw on sort of family here. And, you know, I do have cousins and I do have, you know, aunts um, who, who, for one reason or another, have, have always been interested in, in finance, um, but their providers have not, you know, showered them with information or made that information necessarily understandable. Uh, and I think, you know, at Nutmeg, we have done everything we can to make things transparent. And it's been a really great, um, you know, experience to hear those family members saying, you know what, like, I understand my money now. You know, I can see clearly what's happening. I don't necessarily always appreciate it. Um, I understand how much I'm paying. You know, I, I understand the relationship I have with risk um, and how it makes me feel. And, and actually, you know, solving those situations or hearing them say that when you know how complicated things were um, beforehand is, is a real source of satisfaction. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, increasing engagement, inc- increasing transparency, educating people. Be- I think it's fantastic for, for people because so many have that ostrich effect where they're just head in the sand a bit. Nick, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've actually stepped away from Nutmeg after um, an incredible journey. Before we move on to what you're up to now, any idea of how many clients there would be at, at Nutmeg right these days? I think it's um, uh, close to 65,000 odd. Uh, so um, I think that makes Nutmeg certainly one of the top five wealth managers in the UK, which is a, which is a great achievement by the team. Yeah, well done. Um, you're now based in Singapore, and uh, apart from the living next door to my brother and sister-in-law, and uh, shout out to them both, uh, but you're involved with a VC as well, uh, Portage. Can you please tell us a bit what you're up to now? Yeah, uh, so my co-founder at Nutmeg um, started a new company, and I, I support on that side and uh, you know, try and try and be involved with that. Um, and then I, I also, as you say, uh, do... Investing for Portage, which is a fintech venture capital fund based in Canada. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to um, speak with entrepreneurs and help them with their businesses and not something I take lightly at all. I think it's, um, you know, it's a real honor. Um, so we are looking to deploy some capital in Australia. Uh, and if you, um, if any listeners have any good uh, fintech business ideas, we, we cover banking, wealth management, asset management and insurance. Uh, then um, it should definitely uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, so, um, so really excited about where that's going. Lots of new projects in in the works, and um, uh, hopefully, we'll also be able to help represent my country of birth, uh, England um, and Great Britain, post Brexit, um, 
to uh, to continue to be the center of the world for fintech. Nick, thanks so much for the time to to have this chat. You've you've been incredibly humble considering this fantastic journey that you've been on with with Nutmeg from from starting it to to where it is today and I'm sure the next next chapter with Portage is going to be equally exciting. Thanks very much for the chat. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Tad. Okay, we spoke a lot about what's going on in robo-advice around the world this episode. And if you're interested in learning more about robo-advice in Australia, then visit the Six Park website where you can learn more about our investment philosophy, our returns, and importantly, the people involved too. We'll even provide you with a free investment recommendation online as well. Nick mentioned his good friend and mentor, John Bashirs, in the episode and some of the advice that John provided to Nick over the years. Well, small world, John was actually one of my lecturers over at Harvard Business School last year. And as some of you may be aware, I've recorded a couple of podcast episodes with John on behavioral economics. So check out those episodes if you'd like to hear from John Bashirs. They're in the Richards Report podcast back catalogue on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. And show notes for this episode will be available on the Six Park website too. That's www.sixpark.com.au. If you like this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could please give me a ratings on iTunes or any other podcast provider. If there's someone that you think might be interested in this episode, then make sure you share it with a friend. If this is the first episode of the podcast that you've listened to, well, firstly, then I should say welcome and make sure you subscribe. I've got a, uh, I've got a lot of interesting and exciting podcasts coming up this year. Now, before I go, I was invited along to the Australian Podcast Awards on the weekend and very proud to have been nominated as a finalist on the night. So um, thanks to everyone that listens in. I don't want to finish this podcast episode on a bit of a downer, but unfortunately I walked away empty-handed. Rachel Corbett's podcast, Lady Startup, uh, Rachel beat me. I won't say the loss was as bad as the feeling I had in 2006 when West Coast beat us by a kick in the grand final, but I will say this. Rachel, I'm coming for you next year. Okay, that's it from me. See you next time on The Richards Report.